We pray now for our time together, Lord, that you would use it to move our hearts to a deeper love of you and a deeper appreciation for your word and for those who've gone before us that we might have access to the scriptures in our original language. We thank you for Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. We pray this in his name. Amen. Can hear. How was that? Everybody's awake now. All right. Well, um, it was loud. I told them loud, yeah. Um, it is Reformation Sunday. I don't know if everyone is aware of that. And typically when we think about the Reformation, we think about all things German and Martin Luther. And 506 years ago, Martin Luther nailing the 95 Theses to the church door, though most scholars don't think he actually did it, even though Dad and I have some debate about that. Um, but today we're going to talk about all things English Bible, uh, and I think that makes sense in the context of the Reformation because much of the ideals of the Reformation would not be accessible to most of us if a lot of it had not been translated into English. Um, I spent a lot of time studying Greek and Hebrew and learning how to read the Bible, and my father's consistent joke every time I'd mention that would be, I have an English translation, I'll let you borrow it anytime. <laughs> so today we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about that English translation uh, and how it actually came to be. And as Amy said, I have some examples here that I'll talk about a little bit, and then I'll invite you to come forward later. First test is will the clicker work? Yes. Okay, so for a five-hour lecture on the English... I'm just kidding, not five hours. Um, I thought it would be helpful to organize the various things I'm going to say, so I organized them around what I think are four very controversial things. So if you don't take anything away from this, just remember these four incredibly controversial things. Number one, no slide, no controversy. There we go. The King James translation of the Bible is not a translation of the Bible. Controversial, see, I told you. Number two, in fact, there is no such thing as the King James Version. Number three, we should not read the King James Version. And number four, we can't not read the King James Version. See, three and four are in conflict, so that's, that's the drama here that we're going to build to. But let's start with point number one. The King James translation of the Bible is, in fact, not a translation of the Bible. Why do I say that? I say that because the King James Bible, 1611, owes most of its work to this gentleman right here. Can anybody identify who this person is? Martin Luther? Tyndale. Who said Tyndale? Very good. So this is William Tyndale. And when we think about our English Bible, we ought to give thanks for the work of William Tyndale. Now, I don't want to get too far into the bio of Tyndale. He was uh, a well-educated, ordained as an Anglican priest. Um, in 1524, just after Martin Luther had done a lot of this work, he traveled to Germany, potentially to Wittenberg, and got the idea to translate the Bible into English. There have, of course, been English translations of the Bible before, but those were manuscript translations, and they were done from the Latin. And Tyndale, like Luther before him, translated his New Testament from the Greek, the original language that the New Testament was written, into um, the English as we have it. Now, we should thank Tyndale because when we get to the King James, which is about 80 years after Tyndale, 
Much of the language of our King James that we learned in Sunday school comes from William Tyndale. So just consider a few of the new words that Tyndale invented. These are words that did not exist in English before. Intercession, atonement, Passover, mercy seat, scapegoat, phrases like beasts of the field and birds of the air, male and female he created them, the salt of the earth, the powers that be, fight the good fight. All of these are phrases that Tyndale himself penned. And if we can go forward, maybe, we see what Tyndale's Bible looked like. I didn't bring a Tyndale Bible with me because there are only two of them exist in the world and I don't have a copy of them. Um, but this is the 1526 Tyndale. And if we move forward to the next slide, maybe, there we go. If you start to read that, and I don't know if you can read it, a lot of the languages at the beginning of the Gospel of John is going to sound very familiar. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, right? This is William Tyndale's language that's going to remain in the King James. But Tyndale's also famous for interjecting theology into his translation. And this is one of the consistent themes we're going to see. You can't translate the Bible without making some theological claims within it. So if you move to the next slide here, we'll see an example of this. Maybe. I don't know this is going to work for us, so we may just have to... Yeah, so here's Tyndale's um, translation of the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew. And if you look down toward the bottom, right before that little red thing, I think this has a laser pointer, which would be super cool. Yeah. That's going to work. We see right here, thou didst baptize in the wilderness and preach the baptism of repentance, right there, right? The idea that repentance means to turn one's life around, a kind of internal turn toward God is an invention of the reformers and a Tyndale, and it comes through in the translation. So if you move to the next slide here, you'll see a picture of the Gutenberg Bible, which was the standard Catholic Bible at the time. We can go forward. Yeah, whoop, too far. Look at Miles Coverdale. Okay, um, and if you looked in the Gutenberg Bible, which is in Latin, you would see that John was preaching a baptism of penance, of doing penance. So all of a sudden you see the, the theological differences that are popping up. In the Catholic tradition, it was to do penance, that is, to move toward God in terms of one's active saying one's sorry, whereas in Tyndale, in the Reformer's view, in the pages is the act of repentance, a kind of intellectual move. So there are places when we start to see that the translation of Scripture is not simply a move from one language to another, but it is always going to involve the process of entering theology. So we move to the next slide. Moving down the line from Tyndale, we get to who I call the ugly translator. I always feel bad for Miles Coverdale. He doesn't um, look too great. Um, Coverdale was an assistant of Tyndale, and Tyndale translated the entire New Testament from Greek into English, and he also started to work on the Old Testament. He taught himself Hebrew and began to translate the Old Testament into English, but died. He was actually martyred by Henry VIII um, before he was able to finish it. And so it's Miles Coverdale who actually finishes the first English Bible. And so in 1535, if we move to the next slide, um, you'll see the cover page of Tyndale's 1535 English Bible. This is the first full Bible that would get translated from Greek and Hebrew into English here in 1535. This was in many ways a terrible translation. Um, Coverdale knew no Greek, Coverdale knew no Hebrew, and in fact was just kind of making it work. And so while we can appreciate the idea of a full English Bible, we need to um, not pay too much attention to Coverdale's actually translation. The one difference is the Psalms. Coverdale translated the Psalms, uh, really from Latin into uh, English, and it's t Coverdale's Psalms that stick with us and that we uh, may be uh, familiar with. So phrases like, I will lift up my eyes unto the hills from whence cometh my help, 
This is the language of Miles Coverdale that comes to us through his psalms. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord. These kinds of phrases that we associate with the psalms. The other major decision that Coverdale makes is to decide to include the Apocrypha. That is, those books that are deemed sacred by Catholic traditions but were not by Protestant traditions. And he keeps them as a separate section of scripture between the New Testament and the Old Testament. And so that is where they often appear in current Bibles today, which again, we can uh, give thanks to Miles Coverdale for. The next step as we move through history is 1537 and the work of John Rogers. I always feel bad because the picture I always show of John Rogers is John Rogers being martyred, which you can see here. Um, But John Rogers is famous because he was the first martyr under Bloody Mary, whom we'll talk about uh, in just a second. John Rogers produces what's known as the Matthews Bible. It's actually the first Bible that I brought here today in 1537, which was the first official Bible licensed by the English crown. So this is Henry VIII, and it's the first time that Henry orders a copy of all of the Bibles to be put into each of the Anglican parishes. Um, The Bible that Rogers puts together was largely the work of William Tyndale. It was his New Testament, Tyndale's Pentateuch, and uh, Tyndale's nine historical books. And then the rest was largely the work of Coverdale, though updated quite a bit. Now, at the time, I'd mentioned before, William Tyndale had been martyred. Um, Henry VIII uh, fell out of, or Tyndale fell out of favor with Henry, not specifically for translating the Bible into English, but uh, Tyndale was not too happy with Henry's, shall we say, marital situation. Um, And so uh, the two had a falling out, and Tyndale was actually martyred. And so at the time, you could not actually put Tyndale's name on a Bible. Henry would not have allowed that. And so, in fact, the Bible is called the Matthews Bible because Rogers invented a pseudonym to indicate who had translated it and gave it the name Thomas Matthew. So if you look at the title page, and I can't remember if the next slide has a picture of the title page. No, it doesn't. But on the title page, it says, The Bible, which is all the Holy Scripture, in which are contained the Old and New Testament, truly and purely translated in English by Thomas Matthew. Now, the Bible is dedicated to Henry VIII, and it's often famous for the initials that appear in it. So if you move forward here, Um, You can see at the bottom here of the preface, you see a giant H and a giant R. That stands for Henricus Rex, King Henry. And so the Bible is dedicated to King Henry. And then if you move forward, you will later see um, this is John Rogers, so I for John and R for Rogers that appears later in the Bible. And if you move forward again, you will see um, an R and a G for Richard Grafton, and you will see an E and a W. Uh, These are the two booksellers who largely produced the Bible. But... When Rogers did this, he snuck in one more, and so if you move to the next phase, you see a WT. And these are the initials of William Tyndale. Again, he could not say that this was the work of Tyndale, but he sneaks in the um, initial letters that you see there, um, which gives credit where credit was actually due because it is largely the work uh, of William Tyndale. So here we are in 1537. We've made our way through about the first decade of English translations, and I simply want to make the point that we don't have a lot to work with, that you essentially have Tyndale's work and then people are updating it as we move forward. The first mass-produced Bible of the English comes three or two or three years later, which is what's called the Great Bible. And if we move forward here, let's move forward one more. Yeah, so this is the famous title page of the Great Bible. Um, and I'm going to spend a little time looking at this image because I think it's fascinating, but it also reminds us that oftentimes the production of the Bible is as much a political act as it is a theological act. So let's look at an example here. So if you zoom in on the title page, here you see in the very center of the title page, seated on the throne is our friend King Henry VIII, right? This is not a very subtle statement about who is in charge. In fact, if you zoomed back out, you'd find 
Jesus at the very top of the page, very, very small, and then the center, a giant King Henry, right? Not a very uh, subtle statement here. And Henry is handing out, quite literally, um, he has in his hands here, little books that he's handing out to his side. And on the books, it says the Werbum Dei, the Word of God. So this is Henry gifting the Word of God to the people of England. And he's handing it on the sides. And if you go to the next slide, I think we can see. Yeah, so he's handing it here on the left to Thomas Cranmer, who was the Archbishop of Canterbury at the time. And he's handing it to Cromwell here, who was kind of his political aide. So again, it's Henry handing the Bible out to the church on the one hand and to the nation of England. Henry seated at the center as kind of both the head priest as well as uh, the king. Um, now, one thing that's quite interesting you might note here is this little circle right here. It's almost like they messed up the drawing, right? Um, and on the other side, you see there's a nice family seal here. So this is Cranmer, who was the Archbishop of Canterbury, and this is his family seal right here. And this is Cromwell, who in 1539 was Henry's right-hand man, but they also had a falling out, and so as Henry often did, he had Cromwell killed. Well, this is a 1540 Bible, so they were going to reissue the Bible in 1540, but they didn't want to go to all the trouble of remaking this image. It would take a lot. So all they did is just rub out Cromwell's little image right there, and so that's why you have a blank space right there. Again, a not subtle statement by the king saying, I have the power to quite literally rub uh, someone out. So, um, and if you go down further, yeah, so at the bottom here, at the very bottom of this image, you see, um, let's go, yeah, right there. You see all of the kind of common people. This is all of us here at the bottom of the, of the page. We've been handed the Bible from Henry through the church authorities and finally to us. And all of us are shouting, vivat rex, long live the king, right? So again, on the title page of this Bible, you have Henry not asserting simply that God's word is here in the form of this Bible, but that I, Henry, the throne, have the power, and the people are so grateful that I am um, sending out uh, God's word. So the great Bible, and I brought a copy of it uh, over here that I hope you'll see, is the first time that we have the official crown saying, this is the Bible of England. If we move forward, there's a little lesson here in British monarchical history. So if you don't remember all your kings and queens of England, you'll learn them after today. Um, if you remember Henry, there was a whole problem with having a male heir. He actually did have a son, Edward VI, who was kind of a sickly child and reigned for a short period of time. And then after Edward VI, we get Queen Mary. Looks like a lovely person, doesn't she? Um, you probably know Mary better as Bloody Mary. Um, and she was known as such because during her reign, one of her uh, chief aims was to reestablish England as a Catholic nation. So Mary was herself Catholic. And as part of that, she ran out or forced out many of the leading Protestants at the time. So if you were one of these figures like Miles Coverdale, who was in fact one of these people, you fled England quite quickly. Because remember that picture we saw of John Rogers earlier burning? Good example of what happens to Protestants if they stick around under Mary. And so what happened is a lot of these intellectuals, these kind of leading Protestants of England at the time, fled, and they went to Geneva, which was a safe haven. And there in Geneva were other reformers with whom they had a lot in common. The one probably best known to us is John Calvin, who was, I'm now a Presbyterian, don't tell anybody, but is kind of the forefather of uh, Presbyterianism. And these folks like Coverdale got together with um, people in Geneva, and they created their newest English translation of the Bible, and they appropriately called it the Geneva Bible. And so in 1557 and 1560, we get this new translation of the Bible. And if you skip forward here, uh-huh. 
This is uh, black and white, not a great picture, but this is what the Geneva Bible looks like. I have brought a nice example of it here. The Geneva Bible was by far the most popular Bible in England. Um, even after uh, Mary dies and we get Elizabeth on the throne, these folks come back from Geneva and they bring with them this Geneva Bible. Um, this is the Bible of Shakespeare. This is the Bible that Shakespeare uh, always quotes. And the Geneva Bible is quite famous not only for its translation, but for its notes. This is really the first study Bible. So if you zoom in or go to the next slide, I think we have a zoomed in picture here. Yeah, so two things to note here. One is you see in the margin there are verse numbers. All the Bibles I've shown you to this point don't have verse numbers. So this is the first Bible that has verse numbers in it. And two, you can see that it has these nice little study notes over here. Now, study notes are great until the study notes project a theology that you're not so happy with, right? And so remember, these guys had run up to Geneva, they'd hung out with bad Presbyterians like me, and they'd learned all kinds of crazy Presbyterian theology. And remember, we Presbyterians have all these crazy notions like predestination and all that kind of stuff. And so all of that theology starts to come through in the study notes, right? And so people love this Bible, and if you're the new Queen of England named Elizabeth, you've got a problem on your hands. Because all of your subjects now have this Bible, it's readily available, and they're reading those crazy, evil Presbyterian study notes, and they're being injected with all of this bad theology. This is an example here uh, of a famous passage in Romans 9, where the footnote, or the, the note on the side really does talk about uh, predestination for salvation and these kinds of things. So when we get down to um, uh, Elizabeth, who is, as any good uh, new monarch has to do, she has a choice to say, I need my own Bible, right? And so there was an option for Elizabeth to say, well, let's just take this Geneva Bible, wildly popular that everyone's reading it, and we'll make it the official Bible of England. But of course she couldn't do this because of um, things like this, and so she decided, this is going to be a theme, to create a new translation of the Bible. And so in 1568, we have what is called the Bishop's Bible. And it was so-called because it was done by bishops. Um, and I like to think of the Bishop's Bible as the real first committee translation Bible. So um, it was dozens of bishops in different territories coming up by consensus what a translation should look like. And if you've ever been involved in committee work, particularly church committee work, sometimes the process is kind of messy and sometimes the result is kind of generic, right? And so the Bishop's Bible is, again, don't tell anybody said this, a terrible translation of the Bible. Um, the, for, for nerdy people like me, though, the Bishop's Bible is interesting because it has a little scandal and intrigue uh, in the Bible. So if you move forward, um, we'll see this is the, the title page of the Bishop's Bible, and there you can see uh, Queen Elizabeth seated there uh, in the center. Uh, and does anybody remember what Queen Elizabeth's nickname was? The, say it louder. No, Bloody Mary, we just went over that. This is her sister. The Virgin Queen, right? Children, cover your ears. Okay. So Elizabeth was known as the Virgin Queen, uh, but whoever produced this Bible uh, wanted to have a little fun with that idea. And so there were two gentlemen uh, who were rumored to uh, be friends with Elizabeth. And um, if you flip through your bishop's Bible, if you move to the next uh, slide here, you will find... Um, here, the um, Robert Dudley, the first Earl of Leicester. And if you flip a little bit further in your Bible, next slide, you'll find William Cecil, the first Baron of Burghley. So here, again, Elizabeth is producing this Bible, but the guys who are printing the Bible are doing a little something on the pages that everyone in England would have known at the time. Even more scandalous, at least from Elizabeth's perspective, is if you flip to the next slide, here's the 
first letter in the book of Hebrews, which may not look too scandalous to you, um, but this is an example of what happened all the time, is the printer had a bunch of letters sitting around that he had already purchased for another project, and so he used for this print project. And so he had a G, and he used it. But it turns out that this G was used for an edition of Ovid's Metamorphoses that had come out earlier. And the letter here is, um, in Ovid's case, opens the story of Leda and the Swan, which is a famous story in mythology, where Leda was a beautiful young girl with whom Zeus became infatuated, and she would not yield to Zeus um, until he turned himself into a graceful swan. And the picture here, if you look, uh, look closely, depicts their intimate encounter um, on the riverbank, which was perfectly appropriate in the context of Ovid's metamorphoses, but for the virgin queen who's producing her English Bible, was not appropriate at all uh, to include in the Bible. Elizabeth herself was infuriated. She fined the printer a substantial amount, and she had her justices escort the printer to the London Bridge um, at the River Thames and dump the entire box of copper plates that were used to create this into the Thames, where presumably they still are today. So if you're in London, you should go um, see if you can dig them out. Um, but the Bishop's Bible, again, not a great translation, becomes better known for some of these scandalous things. In fact, it's often referred to as the Leda Bible, which is the Leda is the person depicted there um, from the mythological scene. So I've just run you through about 50 or 60 years of lots of nerdy history, I understand. But there's a basic point that I want to make here. We haven't even gotten to the King James Bible yet and you're seeing all of this activity of the English Bible happening. But if you read any of these English Bibles, if you read the Geneva Bible, if you read the Bishop's Bible, if you read the Great Bible, you're going to hear the voice of William Tyndale come through and through and through. Because even though we are going through different translations and versions, we're all, in some sense, revising William Tyndale over and over again. Which gets us, finally, to the King James Bible. If we move to the next slide here, uh, here we are, the 1611 King James. So no, we're 80 years after Tyndale. So this is quite a lot of work has gone into the English Bible before here. Let me pause here and just think, I'm sure there's all kinds of existential crises I've created, but any questions or thoughts at this point? Good, you're all bored to death, perfect. Okay, how do we get here? Well, the impetus uh, for change in all of these stories is the change of the English monarch, and that in fact happens. So Elizabeth dies in 1603, and we have the accession of a new king, uh, whom we know as King James I, but at the time was known as King James VI of Scotland. So he comes down from Scotland. And as Elizabeth did when he took reign, he had the question of what's going to be my official Bible. And he really had a couple of options. First, James had been hanging out in Scotland and was hanging out with a lot of Puritans. These are the folks that would come to uh, England immediately, or I mean, come to America soon thereafter. Um, and the Puritans had a lot of power over James. And they did not like the Bishop's Bible. They did not like the Bible that, English, or that Elizabeth had created. And so they were lobbying for the Geneva Bible. They said, look, everyone loves the Geneva Bible. Everyone's reading it. Let's just go with the Geneva Bible. But again, the Geneva Bible, if we go to the next uh, slide here, gets in trouble for its study notes again. So this is the beginning of the book of Exodus, um, Exodus 119, and it's the story of Pharaoh gives the order to the Jewish midwives to kill all the infants that they find, right? He's trying to kill uh, what will eventually be Moses, uh, and the Hebrew women don't do it. Um, and the, the note up here says, their disobedience herein was lawful, okay? That doesn't sound too significant to us. But if you're the new king, you cannot officially sanction a Bible that in its footnote says, disobedience to the king is lawful. You see the problem there? People were really into their Bibles at the time, so you have to understand the... Um, and so this very footnote kind of 
wipes the Geneva Bible off in terms of can this be an official uh, Bible of the English crown. And so, as often happens, the new king commissions a translation committee, and we have 50 translators who start at the Hampton Court Conference in uh, 1604 and spend the next seven years translating a new translation of the Bible that would come out in 1611 uh, as the King James Bible. I've brought here with me a 1613, a kind of second edition of the King James. Um, I'll talk about in a second why I brought a second edition. Um, but it was printed in 1611 by Robert Barker, who was the official king's printer, uh, in a famous black letter Gothic text that you'll see here. Two things to know about this. One, we're still dealing with William Tyndale. In fact, it's estimated that about 90% of what we think of as the King James Bible is just a retread of William Tyndale's work. Um, and second, even after its publication, the Geneva Bible continued to be far more popular than the King James Bible. So even though we think of the King James Bible having some kind of iconic status that I'll get to in a second, that did not happen overnight, that immediately it was kind of one translation amongst many. So point one is now complete, and I hope I have fully convinced you that the King James translation of the Bible was not, in fact, a translation of the Bible, but was in many ways a centuries-old revision of the work of William Tyndale. Point number one, I know it was super controversial, but any questions or thoughts before I move to controversial point number two? Very good. Let's move on then. Oh, there's the 1611. Okay, so next, next truth. In fact, there is no such thing as the King James Version. Now, if you skip through the next two slides, or you look at the next two slides, some of you are probably familiar with what's called the King James-only movement. Is that something you're familiar with? Maybe some of you grew up in that movement. This, again, is the idea that the only translation that we can read is the King James Bible. And this is a very famous book that kind of makes that argument. Um, if you go to the next slide, this is one of my favorite examples. Um, this is a pamphlet put out against the New International Version, which they call, as you can see, the New International Perversion. And it gives you all of these arguments for why the King James is the pure translation and all these subsequent translations are messing up what was um, correct. Now, my very flippant, cynical question to all of these people when they say this is, which King James are you actually talking about? And that's an annoying little question, but I think it's actually quite a legitimate question because as I want to point out to you, from the very beginning, there has been instability and change in what we think of as the King James Bible. So I'll give you a couple of examples here. So if you move forward here, this is a printing of the 1613 that we would call the he version of the King James Bible. And the reason that we call it that is if you move to the next slide, you'll see that we, if we zoom in here, this is Book of Ruth, chapter 3, verse 15, and it's talking about Ruth and Boaz, and it says, and he laid it on her, and he went into the city. See that? They used to spell he that way, so that's not an error. But if you're in your grandmother's attic and you find a 1611 King James Bible, you need to flip to Ruth 3.15 immediately and find out if yours says he or if it says she. Because if it says he, I guarantee you it's worth a heck of a lot more than if it says she. Because this is in many ways a printing error. It actually should say she. And if you move to the next slide, you'll see a picture of the book I brought with me here today, which is called a she Bible. Because likewise, next slide, if you move down to Ruth chapter 3, and you will see same verse, and laid it on her, and she, see that right there, went into the city. Now, subtle difference doesn't make that big a difference in terms of how you read the text, but the point is, from the very beginning, there were errors and changes being made in the very first two years that the King James was produced. 
And this would be a very small error or a small change compared to all of the changes that would happen over the next two centuries. So I have a couple of the more famous examples here. If you move forward to the next slide, this is what's called the unrighteous Bible, um, which says here, this is from 1 Corinthians, know ye not that the unrighteous shall inherit the kingdom of God. <laughs> Whoops, right? So there's a missing not here. The unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But remember, this is printing press time. Each of these letters has to be set as an individual piece of type, so mistakes are happening all over the place. We'll get a little more scandals here if you move forward. This is what's called the Wicked Bible. So this is from the 1630s. And if you zoom in here, this is from Exodus in the listing of the Ten Commandments. And we have an Eighth Commandment here where we've made a big mistake. Thou shalt commit adultery. <laughs> this is actually not my copy. There are only about seven of these left in the world. Um, many of them, as you might imagine, the king was not too happy with and were destroyed um, quite a bit. But there are all kinds of examples like this. Uh, there's the child killer's Bible, where Jesus is misquoted as saying the children shall be killed. There's the vinegar Bible, where you get the famous parable of the vinegar, which you probably never heard of because it should say parable of the vineyard. The point is the King James Bible has never been stable in the sense that we kind of think of as frozen in time. It's always being revised and always being updated. Even beyond these printing errors, there was a continued assumption that we need to keep improving the King James Bible. So, for example, I brought with me here today a 1762 Paris updating of the King James. And between 1611 and this 1762 that I brought here, there are 24,000 differences. Now, many of these differences are small, commas, periods, those kinds of things. But just think about that. 24,000 different places in which the text uh, is unstable. So I'm going I'm to move forward here, but I just want to make the very point, my second controversial point, number two, that there is no such thing as the King James Bible. You have to ask which King James Bible are you actually talking about. So let's move forward a couple of slides. Keep going, yeah. This is a fun one I'll talk about later. Keep moving forward. Sorry. We're going to get to truth number three. Good. We should not read the King James Bible. Sorry, Wayne, if I'm getting in trouble for saying this, but... Why do I make this point? In the beginning of the King James Bible, there are two prefaces. There's an initial letter to King James saying, hey, King James, we love you, you're awesome, here's your Bible. But then there is an eight-page preface where they tell you what they're trying to do. And I find this a fascinating document, and I encourage all of you to read it. The problem is it's going to be really hard to read it because printers stopped printing it after about 20 years after the King James was released for some unknown reason. And I have some quotes here that I, I'm gonna, not going to read them to you, but I want to make the very point is that the translators of the King James were very humble in identifying what they were trying to do. They basically say, there were translations before us, there will be translations after us, language has to continually be updated or, in order to match the culture in which it's being read. And ironically, of course, we have taken this particular translation and we've frozen it in time as a kind of iconic status from 1611 when that was never the intention of the translators. And so I would suggest that if we ask the translators, and this is uh, Miles Smith, who's one of the translators who actually wrote the preface, I think they would think we're doing a disservice by holding on to this one translation as the text that should be read. Now, some Americans, as the King James moves into the American context, took this quite seriously and said, okay, we're the new American nation. We're throwing off the mantle of the king of England, we need to create a new American Bible. 
And so some of the earliest Bibles in America were actually new, updated translations of Scripture. So if you can move forward to, yeah, keep going. Sorry, we're going to get through all this boring text. See, I don't have to read all this to you, aren't you glad? Um, yeah, so let's stop right here. So one more slide forward, you'll see a zoom in. So this is uh, 1792. This is a fascinating image. If you go to the next one, I think it's zoomed in on it. Where you have the founding of the new nation, where you have the symbol of America here uh, with the headdress. This is a symbol of America. And America is being handed the Holy Bible right here. And uh, this is a standard kind of Roman art history imagery, which would symbol that America is being emancipated or is being freed by being handed scripture. The question stands, though, which translation will be America's translation? And so there was, from the very beginning, attempts to create exactly that, an American translation. So if you move forward, you'll see the Pilgrim's Bible. The Pilgrims, when they came over here in the 1620s, brought with them not the King James Bible, but the Geneva Bible. That was the original Bible here in America. If you move forward again, this is the psalm book that the Pilgrims brought with them, not the King James psalm book. If you move forward again, this is the first book that was actually printed in America, which is known as the Bay Psalm Book. If you have one of these, please give it to me immediately. Um, incredibly valuable. It's the first book ever produced uh, in America. But it's a new, updated translation of the Psalter, not the King James translation. If you move forward, this is the first Bible that was created in the American colonies. Um, it's actually uh, by a guy named John Eliot, and it's a translation of Scripture into the Algonquin language, so an attempt to uh, evangelize Native Americans who lived uh, in the Massachusetts area. And if you move forward again, here in 1808, we finally get an attempt to create a new American translation. So a guy named Charles Thompson, for whom my brother uh, is named, um, takes it upon himself to translate the entire scriptures from Hebrew, or excuse me, from Greek, because he takes the subject from Greek all the way into English. And there were other attempts. Um, there was a guy named Rudolf Dickinson, if you move forward. I won't talk about all this kind of stuff. But the point I want to make here is that people were attempting to make an English translation. And yet, none of these was commercially viable. None of them was successful. For whatever reason, the King James already kind of had its hands on America. And it became the kind of de facto translation uh, of Scripture. This is Julius Smith's translation that I brought with me. But if you move forward here, um, oh, I have to talk about this. We're in a Baptist context, so I'll have to talk about this. One of the things that people tried to do is not just update the language, but they also said, I want my theology to be accurately reflected in the text. And so a big debate that happened in 19th century America is, what does it mean to baptize someone, right? The English word baptize is simply a transliteration of the Greek word baptizo, so it doesn't really answer the question of how you baptize. But as we all know, there's a theological debate about how you actually baptize, right? I was dunked up in the big thing up there. My children were sprinkled, right? So we have different understandings. Well, the Baptists in the 19th century were quite insistent about this, that you needed to understand what exactly baptism meant. And so we start to see in the American context what are called immersion Bibles, where they did not translate baptizo to say baptize, they translate it to immerse. And so in those days came John the Immerser, not John the Baptist. And you get a whole movement, I brought one of them here with me, of Bibles that everywhere it says baptism, it actually, uh, or it's supposed to say baptism, says uh, immersion. The point being is that people are trying to reflect their own theology, their own language, their own commitments in the translation of Scripture. But as I mentioned before, the King James Bible takes hold, and if we move forward, let's keep going forward, you get the first Bible, the New Nation, which is the Robert Aitken Bible, which is a King James version. 
And if you move forward again, very quickly you get things like the American Bible Society, which are very efficient and very quick at producing Bibles and flood the market of King James Bibles. And therefore, even though there are these other attempts to create um, new translations, to update the language and reflect what the uh, original translators were saying in the preface, in fact, the King James takes on this iconic status really in America in the 19th century. So let me move quickly to my final point. We could talk about that. The final point I want to make is we can't not read the King James Version. And the simple point that I'm trying to make here is whatever translation you pick up, if you pick up the Revised Standard Version, if you pick up the New Revised Standard Version, the American Standard Version, all of these versions, they are in many ways updates or reflections of the original King James. It's one of my favorite pictures of the original, or the guy who headed up the Revised Standard Version translation of the Bible, handing it uh, to um, President Harry Truman uh, in the 1952. So if you move forward here, I just want to make a quick point about updating language. So this is Noah Webster, the famous American lexicographer. You know Webster's Dictionary. A living language is constantly changing. Like the fashions and customs of apparel, words and phrases, at one time current and fashionable, in the lapse of time become awkward and obsolete. So there is this attempt to say language changes over time. And therefore, just like the King James translators told us, we need to continue to update texts. Ironically, of course, Webster does this, creates his own Bible, and his Bible reads almost exactly like the King James, so he doesn't go too far. But the second reason that people update scripture is that new manuscripts have been discovered in the ancient world that need to be incorporated into the translations of scripture. And so oftentimes when you see a new translation, it's largely the result of new discoveries of the Greek text or the Hebrew text that underlies the translation that then needs to be reflected um, in these new uh, translations. So if you move forward, um, we'll continue through. I was going to tell some great stories, but we're uh, running a long time. Anyone ever been to St. Catherine's Monastery, by the way? Talk to me later. We can talk about that uh, example. But let me get to a quick example to talk about one particular translation, and that is the Revised Standard Version. So if you move forward here, we'll keep going. Two more slides, I think. There we go. The Revised Standard Version, 1946 and 1952, the complete Bible comes out. Now, this was an attempt to create a new translation of the Bible that reflected the new discoveries of the Dead Sea Scrolls. So you've probably heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls. These were discovered in the 1940s. And again, it was early text that needed to be reflected in our translations. And there's a very famous example of some controversy that happens because of this. So if you move forward, again, we'll see Truman receiving. This is the Revised Standard Version. Even though it was popular from the beginning, and you skip forward, we'll skip through this, yeah, one more. This has caused a firestorm of controversy in the 1950s, and some of you may have read about this or remember this. So here you have the American Standard Version, 1901, Isaiah 7, the Lord shall himself give you a sign, behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. The new translation reads, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign, behold, a young woman shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. You see the problem here, yes? There's a lot at stake theologically for what's going on here. So without getting too far into the weeds, let's talk about what's happening here. So if you move forward here, here is the Greek translation, or the Greek Isaiah, which uses a word um, which you can see right here. This is the word that's being translated as virgin. It is a Greek word, parthenos, that means virgin. So your American Standard Version, your King James Bible, all of those Bibles before were translating 
the Greek Old Testament to read virgin. Now the Dead Sea Scrolls discovery happens. If you move forward, that's the Greek word. This is the Hebrew for Isaiah 7. And the word Alma, which is right here, in Hebrew really means maiden or young woman. It does not mean virgin. It means maiden or young woman. And so if you move forward two slides, this is the Isaiah scroll that was discovered at the Dead Sea Scrolls. And if you move the next slide and you zoom in, here is the word Alma. And so when the translators of the Revised Standard Version go to incorporate this into their translation of the Old Testament, they say, look, the oldest text, the Hebrew, actually reads young woman. And so we are going to faithfully translate that to read young woman. Well, as you might not be surprised, some were very unhappy about this, particularly in what we would come to be called the American evangelical community. There's a very famous story of a Reverend Martin Luther Hux in Rocky Mount, North Carolina. And I'll just read you what happens uh, or what he says here. He called this, quote, a scheme of the modernists to make the Lord Jesus Christ the son of a bad woman. He exclaimed this, stabbing at the passage from Isaiah 7:14. Then he hurled the book into an ash can. Um, he actually kept the ashes of the RSV, and he mailed them to Princeton Theological Seminary, where they still have them. Um, and then I love this note in the newspaper article, quote, a local newspaper editor observed that Huck seemed very interested in being photographed while he did this. The point is, once texts are updated to reflect what the original says, and that comes into conflict with theological positions, this is where you get tensions over the new translation. We're going to see this again when the new Revised Standard Version comes out in 1989. A, con a constant kind of tension between the Bible we knew before and the new Bibles that are coming out uh, in light of um, new updates uh, and new discoveries by scholars. So I want to close here, um, and we can skip through. I was going to talk all about uh, translations and which translations you can read, um, which I'm happy to talk about offline. But I simply want to remind you of the four points that I've tried to make to give you some sense of kind of this wild and meandering history of the King James Bible. First, it's not a translation. It's the work of William Tyndale, and we really should be grateful for the work that Tyndale has done. I remind you that Tyndale lost his life not simply for this, but in part for this, for the work that he did. Second is, um, what was my second point? I can't remember. Um, we'll skip to the third one if I can remember the second point. Third is we uh, should not read the King James in the sense that we often read it. That is, we should not hold it up as this single iconic translation. People always ask me, what's the best translation to read? And I always say, with a little bit of uh, cynicism, all of them. Read all of them, right? But there is a sense in which, and I remind ourselves of what the preface uh, says, God's word can come through any of the translations in Scripture. And so we should not be so focused on a single translation that we miss some of the insights that come from the others. And then the last point is that, indeed, we have to read the King James Bible because all of these translations that we have around us uh, are, in some sense, a revision or update to the King James. My second point I now remember is there is no such thing as the King James because we have to recognize that there's instability in the text, which feeds into the point of why we should not um, simply uh, wet ourselves to that one text. So I close here, and I will have Amy distribute these slides if you're interested. I put together a list of about seven or eight podcasts, kind of short podcasts that I think pick up some of these topics that if some of you are interested in listening to, uh, I would commend them to you. And then the last thing I will note is that currently a lot of this work comes out of an exhibition that I've curated in our gallery. So the next time you're in Atlanta, um, I have some brochures here, but you're welcome to come see uh, some of these 
Bibles and a little bit more context about some of the things that I've been talking about. So I'll pause here. I'll ask if there are any questions, and then I'll invite you forward to come and see some of the things that I brought with me. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, so they are different translations, so they'll read slightly different. But I suspect if you just read the translation, you wouldn't pick up on, they, they don't read that vastly different, if, if that makes sense. I always tell people, the difference between these translations is not his name is Jesus in one and his name is Sam in another one, right? Um, so the, the translation different is, is, is subtle. Some of the language in the Geneva is quite beautiful. I think it's a beautiful translation. Um, and if you, if you read Shakespeare a lot, you'll pick up on a lot of Shakespeare, not just his scripture quotations, but the language of Shakespeare actually sounds quite similar to the Geneva Bible. Uh, but it is the study notes that I think distinguishes it theologically, for sure. Yeah. Yes, sir. Yeah, great, great uh, question. So um, both of those are what I would call uh, kind of paraphrase Bibles. So the Good News is a great example. That's uh, Those black Good News Bibles are the Bibles we always had here when I was a kid. Um, that is uh, what's called today's English version. Um, and it was done as a way, so there, there are two ways to translate something, right? Is the first is to say, here's word one in Hebrew, this is what it means in English. Here's word two, here's what it means, word by word. And another one is to say, let me just read this paragraph, get a sense of what it's about, and then rewrite it in English. And the good news would be an example of that latter example. Um, some of these translations we've been talking about are a little bit more on that kind of first uh, way of translating things. Yeah. Yes, in the back. It, it could be, absolutely. Yeah, I don't think so. And, and I think it's important to note when the Revised Standard Version, so it gets quoted in Matthew 1, right? That's when it gets, and they use virgin in the quotation in Matthew 1, whereas they used young woman in uh, the Isaiah Old Testament passage. And there's a good reason for doing that. But sure, I don't think that the, the translation of young woman precludes any of the theological weight that goes on the term virgin. It's just a reflection of what's actually in the text. Yeah, good point. Yes, ma'am. Great question. You have a couple hours? Um, short answer is, back when the Catholic Bible was originally translated in uh, the early 400s, a guy named Jerome who did that uh, decided to include it, and so it became part of the standard Catholic canon. Um, those texts uh, were originally written in Greek and not Hebrew, and so when Martin Luther went to put together what we think of as the Protestant Bible, his rationale was Old Testament Hebrew, New Testament Greek. These texts don't fit that category, therefore they're not part of Scripture in the same way. Um, although I would say Luther commended reading them, he just didn't think they had the same um, theological authority that the rest of the scripture did. Um, and, and it's important, I mean, the Catholics have a different canon, Greek Orthodox Church have a different canon, so there's, there's always texts that are kind of at the boundary. Yeah. Yes, sir. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's a great question. I mean, I think about the word, like the word atonement, right? Which literally means at one minute, like putting two things into one, um, which is just an idea that he puts a word on. And people use different words to reflect that same idea. So I think there's always a kind of um, 
any, any translation either from one language to another or from an idea into a specific word, there's a certain loss or a certain interpretation. There's the famous saying that the translator is a traitor, right? Because they're always, the, the, the meaning is always lost. So I think people are always saying, I get this idea of an atonement. Does this word actually capture it? Yeah, people will come up and come up with new words for it. Yeah. Yes, sir. Great, great question. So we could have the same long, boring conversation about each of those European languages, right? So they've all been the same. And for many of them, there's still a kind of iconic translation, kind of like our King James is. So for example, Germans today still read the Luther Bible. It's been updated and revised over time, but it's still based off of him. And similarly, when new translations are done, they're always done in conversation with the original text, the Greek and Hebrew, but also the tradition that has come before. Because in many ways, you want to hold on to some of that tradition, right? I mean, I, the King James still rings in my head when I think about Scripture, and that's a good thing that we want to reflect in Scripture. So I think it's always a kind of a battle between going back to the original and then keeping alive the tradition that's come before. So I think that's, in every language, you see the same thing. Yeah. Okay, I've kept you way over time, so I apologize for that, but I thank you for your time and attention. And again, I encourage you to come forward um, and don't be shy about being around the books. I'm the one who should be nervous, not you, so... Um, I invite you. But overall, thank you very much for your time, and I appreciate the opportunity.